0: My name is Sean Sears, I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church. I want to say thanks uh, for being here today. I am curious. How many of you guys, this is your first time back since quarantine? Raise your hand. I'm just curious. Anybody? A few of you guys. I'm really, really glad that you guys gave it a shot. We've been doing pretty good. I think this is our 10th week uh, meeting, and uh, there's not been any outbreaks. Nobody's gotten sick or anything from being here because everybody's done such a good job uh, keeping their mask on. And I know it's it's inconvenient and uncomfortable, but it's what we're having to do everywhere else in the world also, right? Um, so hopefully this will be over soon. Dear God in heaven, please uh, let, let this be over soon. But I, I, I am glad you hear it. We're in the second week of our series uh, that we're calling Uncommon. Uh, last week we talked about the way that Jesus uh, calls us to live an uncommon life. That when he said in Matthew chapter 16, 16 verse 24, if anybody wants to come after me... Let him deny himself, take up a cross, and follow me. It, 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 that When he said that, he actually, he, actually, he actually meant it. And I think that's the reason why our lives, after we become devoted followers of Jesus, are completely different before we came, be, became, before we, that communion wine in the back is awesome. That's what that's all about. I'm just kidding. There's no communion wines, communion whiskey. But, um, not true either, and inappropriate, but... Um, uh, sorry, I keep wanting to go with that, right? Like the stand-up guy in me who just wants to keep riffing on that, but I'm, I shouldn't. It's inappropriate. I need to get I need to get back to the scriptures. But um, when Jesus said to deny yourself, that that's that's when that's when your life changes is I recognize that my life is no longer lived with me in the middle. And that's kind of uh, the spirit of the age, right? Where everybody's supposed to be true to yourself, be true to yourself, be true to yourself. Like we're all taught this from our childhood, to be true to yourself, to be true to yourself, to be true to yourself. But what the scripture says is that our hearts are deceptively sinful, deceptively wicked. Who can know the depths of our, the selfishness that's in our heart. I mean, if everybody's true to themselves and everybody screws each other, right? Like that's, like it's, it, then it's all, of, all about me. And when you become, and I'm not saying that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can't be a, a generous and kind person. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that our default system changes when we turn from our sin, like when we recognize that the greatest threat in the world to my life is not you, but it's me. Right, it's the sin that's like I don't need you to ruin my marriage. I'm fully capable of ruining my marriage all on my own. I don't even need Satan to tempt me to sin because, dang it, I crave it. Right, like I can sin all on my own. Like once I got a taste for it, then I hunger for it. Right, like that's like I I don't need any outside influences to keep running farther away from God. I'm naturally bent bent that way. When I when I and when I when I recognize that and then I understand that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, is the only like, was was made as a payment for my sin. That when I stand before God on judgment day and he says innocent or guilty, I have to say guilty. when I recognize that God is holy and just and fair and that no fair judge would ever let a guilty person go free. That God, if he is good, cannot let me off the hook. I can't go into heaven because I have become guilty, but because he's loved, he'd let somebody who's innocent take the place of somebody who's guilty. Like when all of this starts to dawn on me and I realize that I, I can't take your place because I'm not innocent. Like the only person who can take the place of somebody who's guilty is somebody who is not guilty, but who here is not guilty. Like the only person who's ever lived the human life and has never broken God's laws or been selfish to their fellow man is Jesus. And if Jesus is just a man, then his one death in place of somebody else only covers one other person's death if he's just a man. But if he's God as man, then his one death would be enough to cover all of mankind's sins. Like once that settles in on me and I call out to Jesus to forgive me and save me. Right? In that moment, I become a devoted follower of Jesus. I repent of my sin is the Bible way of saying this, to become a follower of Jesus. Like, everything changes. I move myself out of the throne of my life, and I put Jesus there. Right? And then the scripture says that when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And then I recognize that one of the acts of worship I give to God is the way that I love and serve other people who are far from him. Right? Right? Like everything begins to change after that, we do become uncommon. It's the things that unite us now, instead of dividing us, and that I, I primarily identify as a devoted follower of Jesus, not as a, not as a, a a a white American. Like so, my white Americanness needs to be lived out of my identity in Christ, right? Like you might not be white, you might not be American. What other ways that you identify yourself as a person? All of these things then get fleshed through our primary identity as devoted followers of Jesus. And the closer we get to Jesus, truly the closer we get to other people. And all of the things that would normally divide us outside of faith fall into the background because they're not as important. Then we recognize that our enemies are not even our enemies. They're the object of the mission. My enemy is actually the one who's trying to destroy other people's lives in this world. He's the roaming lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says that we do not make war against flesh and blood. My war is not against other people. Like, my war is for other people. That's uncommon. And today what I want to do is I want to give you a thermometer. A thermometer that you can go to any time you want and look at, and it'll tell you the temperature of your heart. Now, it's like a thermometer that's in your home where it's also a thermostat. It tells you the temperature. And if you want, at the end of the teaching today... You can adjust the dial to turn up or turn down the temperature in your heart for the things of God. That's what we're going to be looking at today. I want you to think of the most extravagant gift you've ever been given. What's the best gift you ever got? Best gift you ever got? I'm going to give you 10 seconds to tell the person next to you. You got 10 seconds. Tell them what the best gift is you ever got. If you're by yourself, you're just going to have to hang on to that nugget, ain't you? you? Just have to hang on to that for a minute. All right. Best gift you got? 10 seconds. Go. What's the best gift you ever got? All right, that's 10 seconds. No stories. You're just supposed to say what it was. You're like, back when I was eight, and then, oh, crap, time's already up. Man, you went into the history lesson. That was the mistake. You should have just said it, it was, you know, it was that, uh, I don't know what it was. For me, it was Huffy bike when I was a little kid. That's not the most extravagant gift I've ever been given. Most extravagant gift I've ever been given came in, uh, at, I was going to say, 1912. I meant 2012, but sure, 1912. <laughs> My kids think I'm that old, right? Uh, 2012, and uh, it was, it was uh, you know, another year that the uh, playoffs, or excuse me, that the, the Patriots were in the playoffs, and um, my wife went out and bought two playoff tickets uh, for, uh, it, was in J- it was January 15, 2012, and the Patriots uh, beat, beat the Denver Broncos. As it turns out, it was Tim Tebow's last game to ever start in right like that's that's kind of cool, and, and and um and, and no, I was, I was a big fan, you know he wore his, his, his faith out on his sleeve, uh, so he was very bold about his faith, but I didn't think he was ever a jerk about it, like he never made anybody feel bad if they didn't share his faith, like he, but he just owned it for himself, right like I, I respected that ab- about him, and Billy Jane even looked up what hotel the Broncos were going to be staying in, and uh, we hid in the bushes and and we jumped out at. <laughs> And I gave him hugs and kisses. I didn't do any of that. I'm kidding. I became a stalker. I'm a weirdo. No, but we, went to the, we did go to the, the hotel that the Broncos were staying at and, and hung out in the lobby. Now, here's what you need to know, and here's why the gift was so extravagant. Now, now why the tickets were, I think, like $200 a piece. It's the most expensive gift my wife to this day has ever got me for my birthday. It's the most expensive gift she's ever bought me. Um, but it wasn't just that it was the most expensive gift that she'd ever bought for me. It's the fact that she hates football. She hates it. She's, I don't think she's ever sat in the room and watched an entire NFL game with me. It's never happened. Like, she sat in the room, right, and, like, the game comes on, and she's like, I'm going to go take a nap now. That's what she does on Sundays, right? I can watch, I can watch the NFL, and, and she, goes, she goes and takes her nap. She doesn't, she doesn't watch football. And not only did she buy me tickets to the game, she actually carved out the entire day to do nothing But football stuff. Now, did she have a change of heart and all of a sudden become a huge fan of the NFL? No. What she was was a huge fan of her husband. Right? And I felt that. And I haven't felt it since. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) There's always that nervous laughter. Like, does preacher need counseling? I don't know. Like, he jokes around a lot about that kind of stuff. Uh, 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 We should pray for him. Should we pray for you in the Connection Center after their service, preacher? Um, uh, But it was the most extravagant gift because of the sacrifice she went through to give it. Because it took something from her. Like, it was a gift that she (laughs) felt, right? And then we go to the game uh, like an hour early, and we're walking around the stadium. It's my first and only playoff game I've ever been to. It was awesome. Uh, And then I saw where we were able to afford tickets, And then I realized we didn't bring any binoculars or a telescope. (laughs) And we sat in the stadium, freezing our butts off, watching the TV screen on the side of the stadium, the Jumbotron, because we couldn't actually see the players' numbers. We were so high up, right? So we ended up freezing our butts off watching TV, is what we ended up doing for the next three hours. And oh, by the way, in the second quarter, a blizzard came in. See, that's how much my wife loves me is that she sat through the entire game. Like in the, in the third or fourth quarter, I can't remember what it was, but we were, it was obvious that we were gonna win. I looked at her and I said, I said, are you, are you ready to go? And I knew the answer to that question, but I, I, I thought that it was polite for me to ask. <laughs> and she said, no, let's finish the game. Holy crap. Like that's, that's love, right? And it's measured by the extent of the sacrifice she's willing to make. And that's true for every single one of us. Like, there's a lot of people you'll be generous with, but only the people that you love. And truthfully, the amount of your love is seen in the amount you're willing to sacrifice for them. Like, I, I, I say in the generic sense that I love everybody here. But I don't love everybody here. You know what I mean? Is that, is that my, you guys are like, preacher, I'm leaving this church. Like, we can be honest here, though, right? Like, I genuinely care about you finding your way back to God. And that's true for every single one of you guys here. But I'm not buying any of you playoff tickets. Right? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to help any of you go to college. But I'd take out a personal loan to help Ryan. Because I love Ryan differently than I love you. And that's measured. Like, there's a reason why if you say I love you to your spouse, your spouse doesn't believe you. And it's not because the words you're saying are not saying. It's that there's no generosity behind the words that you're saying. So she can tell you don't love her. Like, it's measured by our generosity. That's what it is. And this is true for all of us. We don't do it for everyone, but we do do it for the special ones. And our generosity comes very easy with the people that we love. And generosity is very difficult towards those we don't. It's difficult. Um... And this is one of the ways in which God calls us to be in common in our generosity. The grip that I have on my money and who I am willing to loosen that grip for says everything you need to know about my heart. Right? Let me see if that's true for you. The grip you have on your money and who you're willing to loosen that grip for Says everything I need to know about your heart. True, yes or no? And I think we see this in the life of David. Right? So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you've got a smartphone, open up your Bible app. Click the read icon in the bottom, it's the second one from the left. And then go up to the top, click whatever chapter, book of the Bible it's on, click that up, and it should pull up all the books of the Bible. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and that's where we'll pick up uh, the, the scriptures uh, today. Uh, the, the context uh, is that uh, David is king, and most of the stuff David is famous for, like David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, those things have already happened in his life uh, at, at, the, at the point of this. So he's, he's already uh, like, like pulled the whole country together. They're all in unison under his leadership. Uh, and, then, and then he does something that the Bible says Satan puts in his heart to do. And it's, the Bible gives us no explanation as to why this instruction or this, this idea that came from Satan to do uh, was was wrong. Um, and, and it's to, to number the people of Israel. I, and I don't know why that was a, a bad thing to do. I know that in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God had told Moses that I did not choose you. Because of the size of your people, or the the, the, you know, the size of your army, the number of your people and the size of your army, that's not that's not why I chose you at all. In fact, there's there seems to be almost a disproportionate uh, connection in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, between. Your ability to do something and God's willingness to do something with you. Um, there's, a, there's a verse, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where, God's, where, where, where Paul says, look among you, he says to this church. He says, not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful are chosen to become followers of Jesus. But God has chosen the simple and the foolish And the weak things of the world to confound the wise, so that no flesh gets to glory in his presence. God God always picks the the fat kid in dodgeball first, to use that metaphor. Like, that's, that's what God does. He doesn't pick the Jimmy Slaters. Jimmy Slater was the third grader in my third grade class that the fifth graders always wanted on their dodgeball team. That's how cool Jimmy Slater was. Jimmy Slater in third grade had a beard. That's how cool Jimmy Slater was. Right? That's Jimmy Slater. Jimmy Slater's always picked first. And God, God, God picks, he picks murderers. He picks people who struggle with depression. He picks, he picks the outcast. He picks people with criminal records. He, he picks average common people to do above average extraordinary things so that everybody who sees this goes, it's obviously not you, there must be a God. That's what God does, right? He picks, he picks average people. There's a guy named Gideon that God picks to deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites, and, and then Gideon says, But I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest tribe of Israel. And he says, And I'm from the, the smallest clan in the smallest tribe, and I'm the youngest son. Like I, I am the exact opposite. I am the fat kid in Dodgeball, is what Gideon said. And God goes, That's why I picked you, right? So he picks, he, he, he specializes. And using ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that everybody knows there's an extraordinary God behind that ordinary, that ordinary person. And, and Gideon is told by God to blow a trumpet and gather everybody for war. I'm going to deliver their hands into you. And I think it's like, I don't know, 15,000, 20,000 people get together to fight. And then God said, it's too many. Now, by the way, he was able to count the number of people that showed up to fight with him. And it said that the armies of the Midianites were unable to be counted. That's how many of them. So already they're vastly outnumbered. And God says, your 10,000 is too much. And then he says, tell everybody who's not really into war to go on home. So naturally, most of the people are like, well, if I don't, have to do this. I'd rather not do this. And so they all go home. And then God says, it's still too many. Take them down to the river and have them drink water. And everybody who drinks like on all fours, tell to go home. And then everybody who, you know, get just squats down and scoops up the water, keep those guys. So as he's watching, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who are slurping. And he's like, oh crap, they keep going the wrong direction, right? Only 300 guys like are scooping up the water. And God goes, I I want you to pick the 300. That's what God does. So God always wants to make sure that he's going to put you in a position where you're going to be called to do things that scare the living tar out of you so that you actually learn that God does have your back. I mean, if what pleases God is faith, then God's going to put you in situations where there's no other explanation for why it works out other than him. And what's really weird, and I don't think this is a uniquely American Christian problem, this is probably unique to all people everywhere, we work really hard to budget God out of our lives. Like, I want to have everything fit on the paper all nice and neat, and I don't want God to ask me to do something that doesn't make sense on paper, right? So truthfully, We live our lives making sure that we never actually need God for anything. And then we wonder why we don't see God show up in our lives. But truthfully, where in your life have you done something so radically generous in the name of God or in obedience to God where you needed God to show up and do a miracle to cover your butt? We don't do that. So since we don't make room for God, He don't show up. That's what He does. He takes... Ordinary people, ask them to radical steps of obedience, and those people who are obedient get to experience things that the rest of us who choose common lives don't get to see. And David, knowing all of these stories, had even said to Goliath, when Goliath, with his, his, his spear and his gigantic sword and his armor-bearer, was shouting across the valley of Elah to the Philistines. He said, what am I, a dog that you would send a middle schooler with a stupid slingshot? And David, when he heard this, he even yelled at that time, uh, David yelled, "Uh, the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord. So there was a time in David's life where he understood the way God worked. But he's at this place in life where for whatever reason, he needs to know how many people he's got before he'll do whatever he's supposed to do. And God goes, where'd the heart go? Where'd the heart go? Now, I don't know all the conversations that David has had, but I do know in the Bible it said that Satan put the idea to number the people in his heart and that Joab, who was his right-hand man, like that's his boy from way back in the day when they were hiding from King Saul and Gabe's, Joab knew the reasoning behind David's decision and begged David not to do this. He said, please don't commit this sin against Israel by numbering them. So for whatever reason, it was definitely a bad decision, but he did it anyway. God confronts him about it through a prophet, Gad. And he said, here's your your punishment. Your punishment is uh, three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, war, or three days of plague. And that's where we pick up the story. 2 Samuel 24, verse 13. So Gad came to David and asked him, so will you choose three years of famine throughout your land? Three months of fleeing from your enemies or three days of severe plague through your land? Think this over and decide what the answer will be, that I should give to the Lord who sent me. I'm in a desperate situa- situation, David replied to Gad, but let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. I don't want to fall into other human hands. I don't want the three, years of, of, three months of war. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And did anybody else have as their first thought, dang, that seems a little extreme? Did anybody else think that? Like that, that seems like crazy harsh. Like compare the sin to the consequence. And it seems like it's completely disproportionate. Is how it, how it feels to me, is that it's unequal. Do you guys hear that? It's a saw blade next door. There's a business over there. They normally don't run on Sundays, but they are today. And we're not going to tell them not to. It's, that's fine, because we can handle the distraction, right? Okay, so back at it. Um, but if he starts and stops and starts and stops, we're going to pray against his saw blade in the name of Jesus, is what we'll do. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But maybe we might. I don't know. Maybe we might. And, and this is just a side thought, but I think God takes our sin much more seriously than we do. Can you just put that out there? That God takes out, we, we, we have a way of rationalizing why it's okay for us to disobey God. And I don't think disobedience towards God has ever been something God's been okay with. Now God doesn't respond as harshly to us now on this side of Jesus as he did on that side of Jesus because my sins have already been punished. Who was punished for my sins? Jesus, so it makes me, inc- like when I read stories like this, when I get to see, when I know that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament, and he's just as vengeful against sin and evil in the world now as he was then, it makes me incredibly grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus, that I'm treated differently because Jesus was treated the same for me. So it moves me to a place of gratitude. That's why even more, I'm like, that makes me even more want to deny myself And lay down my life as a sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. Because I recognize the sacrifice he he took for me. Just makes me thankful. So somehow David was struggling with the idea of trusting God. So he counted the people. And, And it's going to be my contention that the idea of trusting God. Is something everybody in here struggles with at some level. Especially in the area of our finances. It's something that we struggle with. And the other thing I want to point out is that the consequences for all three of these choices was gonna be a diminish, diminishing of the thing David was trusting in instead of God. So I think there's a biblical point here. Is that if this is an area of your life that you struggle to trust God in, this is probably an area of your life where you're experiencing God's discipline in. Like there's a reason why you can't get on top of things. And it might be because this is the area of your life where you're most disobedient in things. Just a thought. If my daughter is disobedient on her phone, I'm going to discipline her, what, by taking away the car keys? If she's done something wrong on her phone, I'm going to discipline her with her phone. Now, if she's done something wrong with the car, then I take away the car keys. I'm going to discipline my kids in the area of their disobedience. And why would God be any less of a good father than what I would be. So whatever area of your life you have the hardest time trusting God, that's probably the area of your life where God is putting the most pressure. <laughs> that's, that's God actually taking care of you as his kid. Now, I need to point out that this whole series of living an uncommon life is really just for those of us who've chosen... To deny ourselves, lay down our lives as a sacrifice to follow Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you get this unique opportunity in this three-week series to hear what Christians acknowledging the things they struggle with. And us looking at the scriptures to see how God's called us into a place of obedience. And that's where we're at. So number one principle I want to give you is God will discipline you in the area of your life where you trust him least. 2 Samuel chapter 24. But as the angel was preparing to destroy Jer- Jerusalem, by the way, I think there's only two places in the whole Bible where the death angel is referenced. This is one of them. The Lord relented and said to the death angel, Stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of of the Jebusite. When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, What would you say to the Lord? If you see the angel, he's already moved through all of Israel, and now he's on his way into Jerusalem. David's in his palace, and for whatever reason, David doesn't talk about seeing angels very often, but he sees it this time because God allowed him to see it. So when he sees the death angel on its way toward Jerusalem, that motivates him to pray to God. And what would you pray? I know what I would pray. Stop! Don't hurt me. Right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, don't, like, stop, don't don't hurt me. I would pray some kind of prayer of self-preservation. Watch the prayer that David makes. Uh, When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. David admitted his fault. But these people are innocent as sheep. What have they done? Then he says, let your anger fall against me and my family. Wow. That's repentance. That's not just, a, I'm sorry, get me out of this punishment so I can go and do it again. That is, I have grievously erred. I have sinned against a holy and righteous God. I deserve what I get. God, I'm broken and I'm sorry. When David repented, God Relented. That rhymes, so it must be true. <laughs> Bishop Jakes can do that all the time, man. That's a skill, right? That's, that's just, number two principle, discipline only lasts as long as your disobedience. If you feel God might be trying to get your attention, dang it, give him your attention. And the discipline stops. That doesn't mean the consequences go away. Like if I get caught, driving under the influence and I feel pressure in that area of my life and I repent, that doesn't mean that God's obligated to make the judge go easy on me. If I get my butt thrown in jail or my license suspended, that's consequences. That's not discipline. Some of you are going through a lot of bad stuff right now and you think this is from God and it's not. It's from dumb choices. Are you with me? This ain't God punishing you. You've done some stupid stuff, and it caught up to you and bit you in the butt. Don't blame God for what you did. You plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. You can ask God to forgive you for planting that apple seed, but you're still going to grow an apple tree. Are you with me? So There's a difference between discipline and consequences. Don't mix them up. Uh, one of the things I love about David is that he was always quick to repent, by the way. Not when somebody else pointed out his sin, but when God pointed out his sin. Homeboy confessed, admitted, repented right away. Real quick. I love that about him. Verse 18 and 19, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, that day, God came to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of ruin at the Jebusite. So what does David do? So David goes up to do what the Lord had commanded him. That brings me to the third principle. Repentance is always followed by obedience not more disobedience. That's not biblical repentance. That's you just saying, I'm sorry to avoid the consequence so you can keep doing whatever pleases you. Whatever pleases me. Repentance brings obedience. It brings a change in behavior. If I ask my wife genuinely to, re- if I repent of some sin against her or against my kids, some way that I overreacted. What it means is my behavior begins to change. That's uncommon, but it's biblical. Repentance brings obedience. First, he was disciplined. Second, he repented. Now he's back on track. He's obeying God. Watch what happens next. <clears throat> Verse 20, when Aruna saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come my lord the king Aruna asked David asked uh, David replied I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the lord there so that he will stop the plague Take it my lord the king and use it as you wish Aruna said to David Here are oxen for the burnt offering and you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build an altar uh, a fire on the altar I will give it to you your majesty and may the lord your god accept your sacrifice and you know how I would have seen that Look at this. God's providing. Why, thank you for providing this offering that God's making, making me do. That's what I said. But this wasn't something that David was doing because he had to do. This was something that came from David's heart. And I'm going to show you the thermometer that now had been turned up because there was repentance and now there was obedience. So when there's repentance and then obedience, David then turns up the thermostat, the heat starts going in his heart and then David says this, but the king replied to Aruna, verse 24, but the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on buying it for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. That's not Billy Jane just giving me a birthday card with a $50 bill in it. Like every other birthday since 2012. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's David going online and researching where the Broncos are going to be. That's David telling Sean to get up early because while the game starts at 7 at night, we're going to the hotel at 1. Right? That's... That's a different heart. That's not somebody who says, I have to buy them a present for their birthday. That's somebody who says, their birthday is another opportunity for me to show them how valuable they are to me. David's question wasn't, What do I have to give to the Lord on his altar? The altar was just another opportunity for David to demonstrate to God, the priority God had in his heart. That's what it was. And that brings me to the fourth principle, that obedience becomes worship when it's freely given and generous. When I stop asking, what do I have to do? As long as I'm asking what I have to do, Then I'm giving offerings to God that came from Aruna. I'm giving them leftovers. I'm giving them my margin. But when I get to the place where I say, I need to feel this. That's when you know my heart has changed. And that's uncommon, even for Christians. That's uncommon. The common response to Aruna would have been, thank you. The uncommon response to God was, no, thank you. I will not give to God what has cost me nothing. That's the difference between Cain and Abel. The first two boys ever born into the world. Abel, the Bible says, gave of his first fruits. He had a mama mama sheep and a daddy sheep, and they had the first baby sheep. Before it had any other sheep, he takes that sheep's. Shoop? Before he had any other shoop, he took the sheep. Be careful. I'm going to say another SH word in here if I keep going on accident. Some of you guys almost thought I did. And I, and I did. But I didn't. So, but he didn't wait until he see how many baby sheep these sheep were going to have before he decided what he was going to give to God. What he did was the very first sheep that came out he goes, first, best, God's. If there's any left over, I'll take those. Abel brings in his crops. After the crops are harvested, then the Bible says, "You could check this out." Then it said Cain gave some of it to God. Then the Bible says that God accepted Abel and his offering, but rejected Cain and his. Why? heart. I don't want Billy Jane to feel bad because she missed my birthday, so now she takes me out to Chart House downtown. This dinner don't mean that much to me anymore. This is a makeup thing. You know what I mean? Like, that's Cain. That's what God wants is playoff tickets. Why? Because you say you love him. What your wife wants is acts of service and generosity and personal sacrifice. Why? Because you're the one who said you loved her. Dang it, show it. I wonder how often God gets sick to his stomach. When we say we are something, that we don't back up with our heart. I say I'm a Christian, but I won't deny myself, and I definitely am not going to inconvenience my life, let alone lay down my life. Jesus came to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, and the rich young ruler said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him the honest answer, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, start all over and come follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away sad, the Bible says because he was very rich. The very next day, Luke chapter 19, the next day, Jesus meets another rich young man, walks into Jerusalem. This man is a, is a physically, he's, he's a dwarf, and he's also a social outcast, not because of his dwarfism, but because he had chosen to take a job as a tax collector and work for the Roman government and screwing over his fellow Jews. Since he took this job, he'd not been allowed into temple because he was ceremonially unclean. So the guy from the day before was a rich young religious ruler. He was at the top of the religious ruling elite in in Jewish culture. He was very devout. Was in temple and synagogue, no doubt, every day. By his own admittance, he kept the law religiously. He did all of the checked all of the right boxes. But he'd never given God his heart. Because truthfully, what he loved more than anything else was him and his stuff. Comes to the next guy, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Anybody remember that Sunday school song? Who does not know that Sunday school song? And I sound like a weirdo right now. I'll stop singing. Look up the YouTube, the Zacchaeus song if you want. It's a cute little song. Memorize that when I was a little kid. It climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. I said I was going to sing the song and then I sang the song. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Enjoy that gift. That's from me to you. You know, least I can do. Right? And then at at Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus at the end of the night comes to Jesus and he goes, Jesus. Looks right at him. It's like this quiet moment, right? Like everybody's gone. They're picking up all the bottles, all the trash, streamers, turning off the lights, putting the folding chairs back in the basement again. And he comes to Jesus. The disciples Passed out on the floor drunk. I'm just kidding. They weren't drunk. <laughs> but he comes to Jesus and he says, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've ever defrauded any of my fellow countrymen, I'll pay them back four times. And then Jesus said, Today salvation, salvation's come to this house. Why? Because he bought his salvation? No, but Jesus could tell who Zacchaeus loved most by what he did with his money. Money is our God. Let's be honest. It's the one thing we want more than, if you had to, if Jesus came to you right now and said, sell your house and give one 100% of the money away. See, we wouldn't. We just wouldn't. Truthfully, what he's asked for is far less. And he doesn't get that. It's our God. And truthfully, half of our prayers is asking God for more of his competition. Why in the world would God give you more to worship That's not, that prayer request doesn't even make any sense when we're disobedient with what he's already given us. When he gets cane offerings from us, AT&T gets theirs. Let's be honest. You pay your AT&T bill before you give an offering to God. Because if you had to choose between your smartphone and Jesus, you've already made that choice. I don't need to ask. ha! <laughs> This is really awkward for all of us, I promise you. You know why it's awkward? Because this is real. It really is the thing that we love the most. Which is the reason why Jesus talks about it twice as much as any other subject in the New Testament. You might not have even known that. Because it's the thermometer. It tells your bank account is the roadmap map to your heart. It tells you the temperature of your heart for the things of God. But just like it tells you your heart for the things of God, it's also a thermostat. And you can change the settings. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Change where your treasure goes, and your heart follows There's other passages of scripture for me to read at. Or read For me to read at. For me to read. I should have just stopped there. Um, I'll just say David is notorious for his sin with Bathsheba, but he was exceptional because of his generosity toward God. I want to be exceptional. There are things in my past that are notorious, but those don't have to define me. When David, this is a beautiful story, I didn't look it up because that's not a major part of my notes. But David comes to God and tells God that he feels bad, that he has a palace. And God's still living in a tent that they've been carrying around for the last few hundred years since they were wandering in the desert with Moses. And so he says, I want to build a temple for you. And God's response is, this is amazing. David, I never asked you to do that. Like that, the fact that you would do that He's phenomenal. What's David doing? He's changing the temperature again. And God goes, that's, that's phenomenal. And then God goes, but you can't build the temple because your hands are too bloody. You've killed too many people. If this is going to be a temple in which I dwells, somebody holier than you must build it. Do you know how David responded when God told him, no, you can't do it? David said, then I'll pay for it. Solomon's temple was not built with Solomon's money. Read the Bible. Solomon's temple was built with David's money. Even that turned up the heat in his heart. My wife and I have talked about this. What does this mean for us? I have a life insurance policy. And if I die before that expires, and who knows what will happen with retirement stuff, but if I die, while we're still in that term, my wife and, and I have already talked about it. We're going to plan a church with it. Well, she is. I'll be dead. <laughs> but if I die, the first 200,000 is be going to be given to Grace Church for the purpose of starting another church. I got the idea from my, my great uncle, my dad's uncle, Roy, Roy Sears. He was a pastor in Kentucky for like 50 years. And he died and he left $300,000 to his church. And that church just used it to remodel their auditorium. So if I give it to Grace Church and y'all buy new chairs, I'm going to be freaking ticked. <laughs> it's going to be designated. It will fully fund a new church that gets started out of this church. I cannot think of anything more amazing or more meaningful to me now than to know that in my death, another under-resourced spiritual town, spiritually under-resourced community in New England would get a brand new church where over the next 50, 60 years, hundreds or thousands of people will have the chance to turn from the and follow Jesus because for 70 years I sucked air on this planet. I want to be a freaking David. I've got my Bathsheba's. But those will no longer define who I am. The radical, uncommon change in my life from this day forward will define who I am in the name of Jesus. I will take myself out of the middle of my life and I will put God there. And I will pick up my cross. I will lay down my life as a sacrifice for the glory of God. And I will follow Jesus. No matter what it costs or where it takes me. I do not want to get to heaven with gas still in the tank. money still in the bank. Another house on the Cape for my kids to fight over. I don't have a house on the Cape. But if you wanted to give it to me, I'll be glad for you to be my Aruna. <laughs> Kidding. Right? Ah. Ugh. Other verses, other verses. Biblical Christians give with uncommon generosity. It's just true. I, I know a lot of people in the world that call themselves Christians who've never denied themselves and who will not sacrifice for God and who Jesus would say are not Christians. I wonder how many of them are us. We tick all the same boxes that the rich young ruler ticked. We check all of them. We live morally decent lives. We're good neighbors. We're devout. We keep the law. But if we're going to be really honest, our money is the one thing God doesn't touch because we don't let them Because it's mine. It's mine. And I'm Cain. I don't know if you are. But this is an opportunity for you to repent, become obedient, and then become generous. You can change the thermostat on your heart. And I need to leave you with this PS because I am a skeptic just like half of you. And here's what you need to know. I don't preach on commission. Do you get what I'm saying? I don't. My offering's set. Excuse me, my my income. My income is set. No matter what you give in the offering, my income's set. My income is determined by the board of trustees who are members of our congregation and don't work on staff. You guys set that. That's fixed. If you gave a million dollars today, I would not make any more money because of that in January. But what we would do in 2021 is fully fund five more church plants and five more spiritually under-resourced communities. God's already given us the vision for what he wants our church to do but you have the gas pedal. Our church gets to run as fast as your generosity. And we don't give to a church, we don't. You've never heard me say, support the ministries of Grace Church. It's not biblical. We give to God through a church. And if you can't trust this church to use that money to help more people find and follow Jesus, then please find a church you do trust. But the option to stay cold on the inside will only leave you in eternity with regret. That's it. You can fix this. Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart. Um, And I'm thankful that you love me when you don't have all of my heart. And God, in every... Heart here, there's some area of our life, whether it's our finances or not, there's some area of our life where we struggle with obedience. Even the Apostle Paul had a besetting sin, but no doubt, because of what Scripture says, that was the area of his life you leaned in on, which is the reason why he talks so much about repentance and obedience. So, God, help us to be reminded of your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, how often you give us second and third and fourth and hundred chances. To get back on track. God, if this is an area of our life where we don't trust you, I'm asking your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and show us that lack of faith. Help us to make a conscious decision in the same way we make a conscious decision to serve the people that we love in our families. Help us to love and serve you as well. I pray, God, for your will to be done right now in our hearts so that your will can be done through our lives so that those who are far from you, around us, and distant from us have a chance to know and to follow you also. God, that's what this church is here for. Help us to get better at it. This is our prayer. We ask in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.